Please be seated. <clears throat> Who are you? When asked this question, we might give our name, we might say what we do, we might talk about some key relationship that identifies us particularly with the person asking the question. I'm, I'm, I'm Dan Miller, I'm a pastor, and your uncle lives across the street from us. Something like that. Who are you? It's an important question, and it's answered on a number of levels. The question, who are you, is a question the Bible answers with respect to God. Who is God? Scripture reveals God in a variety of ways. The Bible reveals God's many names, each telling us something vital about Him. He is Yahweh. He is El Shaddai. He is Adonai. All of these names tell us who God is. God also, secondly, is revealed in various relationships. There's a number of interlocking concepts that are constantly being discussed in Scripture and His various relationships, how He relates to the world and to His people. Here we learn that God is Creator. He is Father. He is Shepherd. He is Protector. He is King. He is Counselor. And on it goes, revealing who God is. Who is God? The Bible also speaks of His activities. We learn much about God as we discuss and discern in Scripture what He has done. What He has accomplished in this world. Activities revealing His power, His love, and His glory. But in addition to these, we learn who God is by understanding His various attributes. Here, the focus falls on who God is. His essential nature. Those realities about His being, if you took it away, He would cease to be God. We hear that God is shepherd. This is very important to us. If the Bible did not reveal that about God, He would still be God. That's a very rich metaphor that helps us understand who He is. But if we took away love, God would no longer be God. His attributes reveal who He is in His essence. Now, theologians divide the attributes of God into two basic categories. There's different ways of doing this, but this is a common one, into His incommunicable and His communicable attributes. We talk in our culture about a communicable disease. That means you can pass it on to others. And so the communicable attributes of God are something that we can grab onto and in some way Um, be part of our life where his incommunicable attributes are not something that we can even begin to pursue let alone attain god's incommunicable attributes are such as his infinity god is unlimited and he is unlimitable Uh, he is not bound by time he is not bound by anything god is infinite in His very being, in His very essence. That's not something we could even begin to be. We have a birth date. We have 
begun to exist at a certain point in time. So infinity is not something that we can take on. His omnipotence, God is all-powerful. We may have strength, but we can never attain complete and absolute power. God is omniscient. Again, we can know some things, but we cannot know all things. God knows all things, past, present, and future, intuitively and completely. There's nothing that He does not know. But as we look at the communicable attributes of God, here there is in some measure, not in full measure, but in some measure, we can attain and pursue these attributes ourselves as His creatures, such as love, such as patience, and such as faithfulness and similar attributes of God. Again, we cannot attain these communicable attributes to the measure that God possesses them, but we can pursue and attain them on some level. Indeed, the Bible calls us to do so. It is God's command to us. So in light of the series where we are in the holiness of God, it is natural and right for us now to ask the question, what about holiness? Over the past several weeks, we have found the Old Testament teeming with evidences that the one true and living God is a holy God. To say that God is holy, again, doesn't mean that He's, that he's pretty good. But as we understand the word holy, God is holy, it is to say that He is absolutely, incomparably, transcendently distinct. He is wholly uncommon and separate. He is wholly other. And God's otherness displays itself in absolute moral purity in, as well as in other ways, such as the fact that He is Creator, entirely distinct from His creation. God is a holy God. He is wholly other. Since the holiness of God then speaks of His utter uncommonness, His separateness from His creation, we might conclude if we started with these categories that holiness is an incommunicable attribute. It's his, his separateness, His otherness. We can have nothing to do with holiness. It's more like His, his omnipotence. An incommunicable attribute. We have seen that the Old Testament painstakingly reveals man's commonness, his profane uncleanness. Nevertheless, we discover in Scripture that holiness is a communicable attribute. The Bible not only reveals that God is holy, the Bible calls us to be holy people. Now again, not in the full measure of the sense that we can attribute this to God, Yet, we are to be what God is, holy people. As we transition from Old Testament to New Testament today in our series, the emphasis on holiness we learn in the New Testament shifts away from holy places and holy days and holy rituals. This is a very significant emphasis in the Old Testament. But as we come to the New Testament, the New Testament does not even place much stress on the holiness of God. 
That is assumed from the Old Testament, and it is certainly evidenced in the book of Revelation and throughout Scripture, but it's assumed. It's not stressed nearly as much as in the Old Testament. But the New Testament, the stress falls now on the holiness of God's people. God is holy. His people are to be holy. The New Testament emphasizes the holiness of God's people who are sanctified by the indwelling Holy Spirit. So the goal of this series to this point has been for us to see the holiness of God. And I know as a listener, as a participant in that series, I have not grasped the holiness of God like I'd like to. I know that as a speaker, I've not been able to marshal words and articulate that God is holy as I wish I could. And I know, as I know my own heart, as you have heard of the holiness of God through these three weeks as we've looked at creation and the law and the prophets, you know you don't grasp the holiness of God as you should. Somebody was saying to me, if we really got the picture, we'd probably all fall down in fear. And I think that's exactly right. But in our weakness marshalling as much strength as we can of spirit, we have sought to discern that God is great, greatly to be praised, that He is high and lifted up, that He is a holy God, uncommon, distinct, majestic, and pure. That is our God. As we've sought to establish that idea from Scripture, we come now today in transition to this profound idea that not only is God holy, 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 but He calls His people to be a holy people. And again, were we to truly grasp the significance of that calling, we would probably be reduced to trembling fear. He calls me to be a holy man he calls his people to be a holy people the indicative of god's holiness the statement of his holiness necessitates this imperative be holy people and nowhere do we find this any more clearly stated in the new testament than the in the apostle peter's first epistle I invite you to turn there as we've read it earlier today. 1 Peter chapter 1. Not to belabor this long, but to gain a flow into the thought of the text here as holiness becomes a key theme in this epistle. Let's just gain a sense of the context. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, we find the the author, Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, we find the recipients are those who are elect exiles. In the dispersion, he mentions the places, the regions, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. They are elect individuals, that is, they have been chosen by God, they are sanctified by the Spirit, they are holy people. We'll talk about that word in a bit. Verses 3 through 12, Peter celebrates the wonders now of the new birth. 
in verse 3, you'll notice there that you have been, He caused us to be born again. The translation might be better. He birthed us again. He rebirthed us. He gave us new birth, new life. Verse 4, we are heirs of eternity. Verse 7, perseverance in the faith is indicated as they endure trials and persecution. Demonstrating what, verse 7? Demonstrating the genuineness of their faith. Verse 9, what is the end game? The end game, you see there in verse 9, is the salvation of your souls. Not that they're not saved, but they are saved in one sense of the word. They are being saved in another sense, and the ultimate is for their salvation. Christ's perfect work is saving these people. So, as we put it together, we might ask the readers of Peter's epistle, who are you? Who are you? They could say, we are divinely chosen, born again, heirs of eternity, saved by God's wrath, saved from God's wrath, by His grace alone for all eternity. That's who we are. To these believers in Christ, Peter now discusses the so what. So what? If this is who we are in Christ, this is what it means, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice the word there, therefore. It's connecting to all that goes before. Since you have been born again, since you are heirs of heaven and its eternal riches. Since your faith is proving genuine, you must live with a certain orientation and lifestyle. Therefore, here's how you are to live as God's people. Verses 1 through 12 is the indicative, the statement. Verses 13, then and following, is the imperative based on those truths. What is is that imperative what is the obvious response when we see the holiness of god it is to prepare your minds for action the greek is to gird up the thighs of your mind that doesn't work real well for us so our translations try something a little differently but gird up the thighs or gird up the hips of your mind what on earth is going on there but if you lived in a world where everybody wore robes, those long flowing robes would get in the way if you wanted to do something of work or to run, something like that. So you would take the robe and hike it up and stuff it part of it in your belt and free up your legs. Your thighs are free now to run with your robe tucked into your belt. So the, it's really just a metaphor that they would have understood of preparing for aggressive action. Believers in Christ, it's time to work. You see the holiness of God, the sanctification of the Spirit. It's time to run. So prepare your minds for action. We're called to be here sober-minded, which means we are to think in a certain way. The idea of the Greek word of sober-minded is self-controlled clarity of mind. I don't know about you, but I can be really confused in my thinking. And I know that a, a part of the discipline of the Christian life is to talk to my head. 
and get it straightened out and think clearly. We can become discouraged. We can become sensual. We can become in so many ways unlike God and turning our thoughts in ways where they should not go. We need clear-minded thinking. Be sober-minded. Prepare your mind. For Jesus saves us to learn to think a certain way. One aspect of that discipline of mind to which God has called us is to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Say that simply, Jesus is coming back. The one that has saved you, the Lord to whom you submit in your life, this one will return. So think clearly. Orient your very short life to the meeting that you will have with Jesus Christ in eternity. Now, this word hope, set your hope fully, is connected up to verse 3. Where we read in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy He has caused us, or rebirthed us, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through His life, we now have a living hope. Verse 13 connects back to that idea of hope. Set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope is not a dream. Hope is the reality of what is coming in the future based on the promises of God. So we're to set our minds on that hope that Christ will return with thoughtful, disciplined, clarity of mind, to focus with anticipatory hope on the return of Jesus Christ. Now notice this hope-based orientation brackets the discussion. Verse 13 is hope. We come to verse 21 and it's hope. And so in verses 13 to 21, we're looking at this idea, this controlling theme of hope in Christ's return as the end of our salvation the controlling center of the passage. That leads us now in our series to this consideration. What does such clear-minded, disciplined, future-oriented focus look like in the daily life of a follower of Jesus Christ? In a word, it is holiness. Holiness of life. We find this call to holiness beginning at verse 14 with the negative side. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So if you're with me, if you've lost it, come back on the wagon here. Our focus is clear-minded thinking about the hope of Christ. What's that going to look like in my daily life? It's going to look not like this. We are not going to conform to the passions of our former ignorance. What does that mean? We are to consciously with disciplined, clear-headed thinking, reject the fads, the feelings, the fantasies, the faithless pursuits of this world calibrated to appeal to the sinful nature. We live in a world that is passionate about pleasing its passions. And its passions come from a depraved orientation. We live in a world that constantly panders to those passions. It's offering opportunities for us to please those passions at every turn, wherever we go. 
clear-minded thinking says, I will not be molded by those offerings. I will not let this world mold me into its shape as it puts out the displays of passion, the cravings and desires that we naturally have, and it offers opportunity after opportunity to glut those passions. I will not be molded to that way of life as one in pursuit of holiness. As obedient children, do not be conformed to those passions. The passions of spiritual ignorance revolve around the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, which we could say is the please me, give me, honor me way of life. These cravings characterize people who are spiritually clueless. You see, it speaks of our former ignorance. Now we're born again. But in our former ignorance, there was this running after these passions. Ignorant of the holiness of God. Now, understanding, in the three weeks previous, we've seen the holiness of God. This world is ignorant of that uncommonness. That separateness of God, that utter moral purity of God, it has no idea. And so in their ignorance, and once you in your ignorance, Peter writes, ignorant of that holiness of God, we crave fame and notoriety. We want it. We can taste it. We want fame and notoriety. We lust for material possessions. We desire sensual pleasures which God in His holiness has set off limits. We long for escape from reality, to turn our minds off and enter the mist of disengagement from all responsibilities for long periods of time. We are desperately desirous of putting ourselves ahead of others. We want first place. We want first position. We jockey and elbow others out of the way to get what we want. We crave what others have and find twisted pleasure in envying them. We want want our way. We have no desire to put the interests of others ahead of our own. We have a bloodthirsty passion for war with other people. Seeing ourselves as the children of a holy God, we are to actively resist permitting such a world to mold us into its mindless capitulation to the passions of the flesh. If you're following me here, it's making real clear sense. That is uncommon living. I'm going to live in a way that is radically distinct from those who surround me in this world. What I go after, what I crave, what I desire, I am going to subject to clear-minded thinking about the call of God upon my life. And I'm going to seek satisfaction of passions that come from the Spirit of God, not from the flesh. That is a radical reorientation of life. 
Now, I hasten to say, it doesn't come from us being really good people. It comes from the indwelling Spirit of God. It comes from all that we've discussed here in this first chapter, that we are the chosen of God, born again by Him, sanctified by His Spirit. More on that to come, but just be cautious there. It's not, I'm going to get this all together now. No, it's the work of God. Who's work, he, he is working in us to produce this holiness in us. But it is this reorientation of life that marks His people. That's the negative. I'm not going to be conformed to this world and its offerings to satisfy passions of the flesh. Positively, in contrast, verse 15, as He who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Again, it might seem somewhat counterintuitive. God is holy other and holy distinct, and yet wants us to be like Him. He wants us to be holy people. He who called you is holy. In these past weeks, we've sought to lift up the holiness of God. That was far more than an academic study. You cannot pursue holiness unless you have a clear-minded vision of the holy God. Apart from that vision, you'll never pursue holiness. It's not, again, I'm going to get my spiritual act together What it is, is looking with clear vision to who God is. That's what's at the heart of our transformation and our change into holy people, to see the holy God for who He truly is. As He who has called you is holy, that's the basis of it all. As God's children, we are to become holy like our God. You also be holy in all of your conduct. Like God, we're to be distinctive, separate, out-of-this-world type of people. Our lives are to correspond to the distinctive moral purity that characterizes God who always acts in absolute consistency with His moral perfections. I know about every one of us, myself included, we have not acted that way this week. Probably on some level, every one of us is not acting that way right now. In perfect conformity to the moral perfections of Christ? No. We don't. But that's our calling. To conform our lives to the holy holy standard of God. This world is characterized by its temporal focus, its self-centered orientation, its passions for idolatrous pleasures, A holy way of life orients my life to the holiness of God. A a life orientation that is very much unlike the world in which I live because it sees Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords. It sees everything from the center of Christ crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. If you have clear-minded focus on that reality of who Christ is, it will radically separate you from this world. And so is our calling. If we have a mind clearly focused on these realities, our life is going to be distinct. Now this this, uh, battle 
for holiness. Let me talk to those who are younger among us, the children, the young people. This hits you in a very unique way. Because we are born into this world with a very decided bent to identify with those around us. And it doesn't take you very long growing up, particularly if you're in a Christian environment, it doesn't take you very long to figure out, you know, the majority of people aren't following Christ. There's a big, broad world out there, and there's many people who don't identify with Jesus crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. He is not the Lord of their life. And what you have to come down to eventually as you grow and mature is to come to a decision, to come to a place of orientation asking, who am I? What is my identity? Are you enamored with this world and with its ways? As we're pulled there, we're pulled away from the holiness, the distinctiveness, the utter purity of God into the satisfaction of the passions of the flesh momentarily providing pleasure and ultimately destroying us who are you for those who are past that place in life those who are older among us the adults the elderly who are you what is your orientation is it now wealth Career, property, retirement. See, as we keep walking as Christians, we kind of come out of that enamored with the world's ways kind of thing, and we we find the respectable applications of worldliness. To be pursuing property and retirement in ease, not that it's wrong to retire but in the, the ease of it and wanting the things of this life. Who am I? Is my life clear-mindedly centered on the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that my focus and my orientation? Am I striving to be a distinctively holy man or woman who claims Christ as Savior. The the basis of this call to holiness we find in verse 16, it is written. It stands written, we might translate it. Peter appeals to the authority of the Hebrew Scriptures as he makes this call. Let's turn back to Leviticus chapter 11 and to pick up the thread of his foundation here as he issues this call from the law from the mosaic law we we noted this in the past few weeks as we looked at the holiness of god two weeks ago in the law we find ourselves in a very interesting discussion it stands written in leviticus chapter 11 leviticus chapter 11 now the context here is really intriguing it's clean and unclean animals the israelites were enabled to eat certain meats, certain animals, for food, but others were unclean and were not to be eaten by the Israelites, to mark out 
their uniqueness as a nation. You see that in chapter 11, verse 1, what you can eat, what you cannot eat. But as we come down to verse 41 of this chapter, Leviticus 11.41, it says, Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourself with them and become unclean through them. Those missing uh, two weeks ago, this will, this, this will be a little bit of hard plowing. I'll just review just briefly. But remember that the law code was set up as a living lesson to the Israelites that uncleanness permeates their world. It wasn't necessarily, indeed, there wasn't anything wrong with these creatures. God made them. It wasn't wrong to study them, to appreciate them on some level. But you don't eat them. It was a living lesson to say there are some things that are unclean. There's uncleanness, in fact, that is part of our everyday life. Menstruation, seminal emissions, childbirth, touching a dead body. All of these very natural things rendered one ritually unclean. And so as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, even if you touch someone who had such an experience, or where they sat and touched the chair they sat on, you became ritually unclean, such that as we put it all together, we realize the Israelites are commonly, are constantly coming in touch with the reality that I'm unclean. I'm not fit to come before a holy God. And it's not only sin, willful rebellious choices to disobey the voice of God, it's mere humanity renders me unclean. I think it's interesting. God doesn't say you're sinful, but He uses the word unclean through all of these ritual events. And so Israel was also constantly going through purification rituals to gain acceptance before a holy God. Even the Israelites' diet was a matter of maintaining ritual purity before the Lord. There's nothing inherently evil about these unclean insects or animals or creeping things or crawling things. God creates them all. But the lesson underlying all these rather odd rules and regulations is the holiness of God. He is utterly uncommon and distinct and it is all a reminder to them of their profaneness so even in something as mundane as what's for dinner the israelites were directed to always consider the holiness of god Now, the New Testament, as it develops from here, the emphasis falls no longer on ritual purity, but on moral purity. That was there in the Old Testament as well. But here in the New Testament, that becomes the central focus. Now that Christ has fulfilled the law for those who trust Him as Savior, the emphasis falls on our pursuit of Christ-like character. So the moral imperative of our call in this text of Scripture as it's built on the Old Testament is be holy, verse 15. You shall be holy, verse 16. Do you hear how that rings? 
it doesn't come across as a suggestion, does it? It's not, here's a tip on how you might get a little closer to God if you're really into this kind of thing. Why don't you think about being holy? It's you have been saved to be a holy person. It's who you are in Christ. Holiness is a high calling, a distinct privilege. It's not an option. In fact, it's a reality. How does the New Testament refer to believers? Very consistently, it calls us the saints. Remember, we can say this here because it's biblical. It's not dead people that are saints. In the New Testament, it's always living people who are the saints. What's that word? That word saint is the same word, holy. We could say they're holy ones. We are the holy ones in Christ. We are set apart from the world, devoted to the purposes of the living God. The word sanctified is also from the same root. So we put it together. The holy God chooses us to be His holy children who are set apart from the world for His use and are being made holy through the sanctifying work of God's Holy Spirit who indwells us. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's who you are in Christ. You have been set apart. And so Peter calls these people, as the Spirit today calls Eden Baptist Church, be different. Be holy. Be distinctively, in your conduct, living as God's children. So who are you? There are some among us, you may well still be in the darkness of ignorance spoken of here in verse 13. You're really ignorant of the holiness of God. And you say, I I don't know that I've really conceived of this idea of His utter separateness and purity. And one of the evidences that you're in that ignorance and that darkness is you routinely break the law of God day after day after day and you never think a thing of it. It's God in all of His holiness calls us to be people who tell the truth. People who love others and put them ahead of ourselves. People who indeed love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We're to be people who are not given to greed and lust, to impatience, to hatred. We break that law over and over again with no fear that God is holy. If you find yourself in that place, you need to know that there is a holy God. And that the only way that you can be received by this God who will someday stand in judgment over every soul is to come to know that Jesus Christ has died to pay the penalty of your sin. That He has taken the place of the sinner, has died that death as the perfect sacrifice and substitute. And you must come to Christ. You must. You must flee to Him for refuge and for forgiveness before the Holy God because you are not a holy person in your own strength. 
Now this is the glorious message to those who respond to it. This is the truth we always needed. And so some of us have been brought out of that ignorance of God's holiness and our unholiness, and we have now received the forgiveness of Christ. So like these readers of 1 Peter, we too have been chosen by God. We too have been born again. We too are being sanctified by the Spirit. And we too are demonstrating the genuineness of our faith by continuing to trust Him through the trials, the difficulties, and the persecutions of this life. But as those believers, we then, if we're genuinely born again, we are holy ones. We have been saved To be holy people, we are indeed holy, set-apart, distinctive people. And as we pursue our calling, we find great encouragement in Peter's words as he connects holiness and future-seeking hope in this passage. If we have genuinely set our hope on God and the glories of our eternal salvation, one of the evidences is holy living. We prove where our focus is by the godliness of our life. If I'm struggling with sin, if I'm not a holy man or woman or child, it is because my hope is not set on the return of Christ. I don't quite get it that I am a holy one. We see in holiness, we see the world rightly. We know the end game, and so we live in active anticipation of it. When we're enamored with the world, when we pursue the passions of the flesh in violation of God's holiness, it is proof that our focus is on this world, not on our citizenship in heaven. So who are you? As born-again followers of Jesus Christ, we can say we are holy people. Chosen as His children, now devoted to His cause, pursuing His righteousness, being sanctified by His Spirit. Who are these holy ones? What what does that mean as we continue to apply it and consider its connections? If I'm growing in sanctification, I'm growing in holiness. Let me give you a, a fairly lengthy list, but I think some evidences of holiness. I will always seek to believe what God believes and see this world as God sees it. Now, you might not really want to say that, but the truth being, there's many times we read God's Word, we hear it proclaimed, and we say, I just can't buy that. A holy life says, I believe what God has said. Secondly, I will strive to, I will want to love what he loves and hate what he hates. I'm going to orient my loves and my hatreds toward what God thinks. And know that if he loves it, I should love it. If he hates it, I should hate it. And I'm going to actively, with clear mind, live my life with that orientation. Thirdly, I will repent of and renounce every known sin and strive to obey every known commandment of the Lord. I'm going to want to walk in obedience. Number four, I will see all my possessions, all of my time, all of my abilities as gifts from God to be used for the glory of His name. Now that's distinctive thinking. But I'm going to realize that everything that I possess, every ability, my time, my resources, all of it is a gift from God to be put into play for the glory of His name. 
I will see nothing as my own possession to be held on to as mine. It's all His. I can enjoy it. I can use it. But it's all for His glory and honor. Number five, I will want to be like Jesus Christ. That's one of those statements you go, well, that's about as obvious as can be. It isn't. I will want to be like Jesus Christ. If, if we're genuine believers, we all cheer Jesus for being Jesus. We want Jesus to be Jesus. We struggle a little bit more with wanting to be like that. Because honestly, with all due respect, he was weird in this world. He was odd. He stood out. That gets a little intimidating. I will want to be like Jesus. He will be my, if I can say it, this is a bit crass, but he'll be my hero. I mean, really. I'll know more about Jesus than I know about all the idols of this world. All the heroes of this world. He will be the one I emulate and love and submit to. Number six, I will display the fruit of the Spirit if I'm pursuing holiness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These will be things I want to see in my life. I'll value them and I'll pursue them as I, again, submit to God's Spirit who produces this fruit in me. Number seven, I will love people. Love them in accordance with God's Word and in the various relationships of my life. A lot could be filled in there as I husband, wife, child, whoever I am, whatever relationship. But I will love people if I'm a holy person. Next, I will set my affections on eternity knowing that I have been purchased by the blood of Christ for eternal joy in the presence of the Lord. Next, I will read God's Word, study it, meditate upon it, and seek the Lord's will for my life in it. I will strive to obey that Word. I'll want to know what God thinks because I want to conform my life to it. I will live in persistent prayer. I will identify with holy people, love them, serve them, gladly relate to them, and give God thanks for them. Who are you? If you say... I'm a child of God, then you need to prove that by living a holy life. If you do not live a holy life, if you're not striving to be a holy person, what proof do you have that you've been born again? He saved you to be a holy person. That's His project. If His project's not happening in your life, Think about that. Long and hard. The author of Hebrews put it in 12.14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We're all sinful. We all fall far short of this call to holiness. But without holiness, in complete conformity to this world, we won't see God in eternity. This revelation of Jesus Christ will not be a day of joy and gladness. It will be a day of destruction and judgment. We've rejected Him. 
he'll reject us in eternity. But if you truly are born again, here's the glory of it. It's again, it's not let's run out now and really get our act together. The glory of this is that holy ones is who we are. It's who God has made us. This is a work the Holy Spirit is bringing about in my life. So again, if it's missing, I need to really wonder where I'm at with God. But if I know that I've trusted in Christ for my salvation, that the Spirit of God dwells within me, He's doing this. This is His project. He's changing you. He's going to be making you into a holy person. And I I get thrilled for those of you who are new believers, for those of you who are just beginning to pursue God in His Word, it's a thrilling thing to consider you're at the front of a life that's really going to change. There's going to be some radical changes that take place in your orientation in the way that you live your life. Because God has made you a holy person. He set you apart from this world and He will be doing that sanctifying work. Hang on for the ride. It's a good one. In our folly, in our foolishness, we let go of sin very hard. We don't let go of it easily. But when we do, we find out it never brought us any joy. It was only a weight around our neck that was drowning us. God will do this work. And think of the work that He's doing. In light of this passage and its connection to hope and the return of Christ, in eternity, do you realize, holy ones, saints, that we will be made holy people? No more sin. No more of this passion for godless ways. But in eternity, saved by Christ, we will shine in glory, in perfect holiness. On that day, we will know that a state of holiness is the state of ultimate joy. And we will gladly let go of all sin and every thought that is not brought into conformity to Christ. We will let this world and its ignorance loose very gladly as we come to a place of absolute holiness in the presence of God. Do you agree with me? Is that who you are? Is that what He's really doing? If you think of it logically with clear mind, that means then that sin is nothing but a weight. And righteousness and holiness and walking with God is nothing but the future glory that we're going to receive ultimately. It's the only path. We live in a world that is pandering to so many passions of the flesh. Why? Why is there drug abuse? Why is there so much illicit sexuality? Why is there such a running after money and running after the pleasures of this life? Please be careful here to hear me, but that's not as bad as it all looks sometimes. Absolutely bad, but... What it is, is this evidence that within us there is a desire to find our joy, our pleasure somewhere outside of us. Now what's so twisted and wrong about it is it doesn't get located in God. It's not seen in the life of holiness. It's seen in these temporal, short-term, immediate pleasures. 
But what's not bad about all of that is that there is a craving to find satisfaction outside of ourselves. That satisfaction will be realized throughout all eternity in God's people as we are made into perfect holy ones. And so we've got to, in a clear-minded way, set aside the attractions of this world that do indeed bring pleasure to the flesh temporally. And we need to pursue holiness of life. Without holiness, we will not see the Lord. With holiness, we will enjoy pleasures forevermore. And that if we're in Christ, is who we are. Saints. Holy ones. On a journey, ultimately, to know Christ in all of His holiness and to become like Him in holiness. Let's bow for prayer. Father, what do we pray? We need you. We need you desperately to lure us away from the attractions of this world. We're in this world. You've given us all things to enjoy on one level. We don't pursue holiness by finding a cave and hiding out in it or isolating ourselves behind walls. We rub shoulders with godless people. We see a world with all of its artifacts that mix together good and bad elements. We struggle to know where holiness stops and worldliness starts sometimes. But we thank you for this high calling and plead that you will help us as a church to grow in holiness. For anyone here who does not know Christ as Savior, I pray that you will bring them out of their sin today and bring them to faith in Jesus crucified and risen according to your will and electing purposes. We plead that you turn hearts as we plead with sinners to repent and come to Christ. For those of us who know you, we acknowledge before you we're not holy as we should be, but thank you for showing us the vision of your holiness and thank you for calling us to this life. And God, where that craving and desire for holiness is evidenced among us, that is an evidence of your work in this assembly. And we pause here to give you thanks and to, and to be here gathered together in wonder and awe at what you're doing. Please continue to work and change us for the glory of your name. May we be the holy people you've called us to be. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.